So, uh, hey Mike. Hey Colin. Welcome to Divergent Opinions, episode 12. Yes. We are recording today to talk about stuff. It's still light out. It is, yeah. It's light here too. The sun just came out, although it's like 50 degrees and I'm very cold and I have a bit a bit of a sniffle. Mm. Yeah, we usually do these at night. We're, uh, we're doing this during the work day this week. Yeah. That's good. This is a billable podcast. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, IBC. IBC is come and gone. Yet another that we weren't at. Very sad. It's all over. Everyone's packed up their things and, and moved on to the Frankfurt Auto Show, which is also wrapping up. I don't think anybody did that. I would have if I'd been in Europe. Uh, yeah. So, which one of us has Backblaze going, by the way? Um, let me see. That was me. I'm not, yeah. Okay. I am using six kilobytes a second. That's I wonder if, really low. You think if I talk louder, it goes up? More Probably bits? Probably not. No. Isn't that how audio works? No. Oh, okay. I should probably, yeah, learn a bit more about that then, huh? I, yeah, that might help. So, uh, what? So, what happened? To, last time we did this, we were just speculating. It was ahead of time. We were just reading a couple of press releases, but now people are actually showing all their stuff. Yeah, well, seeing all the announcements out of IBC. Yeah, so a fair number of. Um, Interesting things, I guess. Um, lots of Thunderbolt stuff and lots of DNX HD stuff. Yeah, it was the year of Thunderbolt and DNX. What do you think that's all about? Which? Uh, the latter, DNX. I think uh, everybody realizes that they shouldn't have uh, put all their eggs in the Final Cut Pro ecosystem basket. So, pro as it is. Yeah, I mean, DNX HD is, you know, it was always kind of strange that it didn't get supported sort of lumped in when people had it ProRest everything. I mean, it's always been an openly available, I mean, it's much easier to get access to that spec. Um, it's SIMPD, it's at least, I don't get exactly how it relates to SIMPD's VC3, which is an you know an actual standardized codec. I believe it's a subset or like a set of predefined parameters on VC3. But I mean, it's always been very easy to implement, um, and I don't know why everyone jumped on the ProRes bandwagon and didn't add a simple switch to do both. Yeah. They're very similar codecs. I mean. We can talk about that a little more since we uh, since we can prove that now. Yeah, I think we'll get to that in a bit. I mean, um, I, I mean, you know, I guess uh, there's certainly no problem with uh, people adding more support, but I think it is interesting that it's taken till now to start seeing um, a widespread use, and and maybe some of that is not just you know people jumping on the ProRes bandwagon, but also um, that you know people who traditionally lived in the avid ecosystem really lived in the avid ecosystem and didn't look outside of it quite so much and you know because avid tends to you know serious avid users tend to have such you know deep and wide um 
workflows that you know having these portable field recorders that go to dnx isn't as, as important when you've sort of got a workflow that involves you know your pa is ingesting your stuff and you know everything goes on your unity and blah blah blah, blah. um you know because right. final cut doesn't have any of that and, and people you know sort of editors end up touching files much more common more frequently there was a, a lot more demand to simplify that side of the workflow how much do you think this has to do with uh the problems with tape stock too well, I think that's that's probably a big part of it. I think um, you know some of the issues with the way Avid handles some of the new formats is probably an issue. I mean, um, what, what's their uh, their background transcody thing called? AMA. Yeah, uh, I haven't heard a ton of love for that in actual production workflows. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it seems like it. The people who are using it seem to enjoy it. I think most people agree that you don't just run off AMA the whole time. You use it right. as sort of a stopgap solution while it's transcoding. Yeah. But people who do that seem to not have too many problems. I mean, sure. we've got a number of clip wrap customers who right, sort right. of do a hybrid situation where they clip wrap and then AMA the clip wrap clips. So I don't know. It um it's an interesting I mean so yeah, so what came out with DNA DNX HD support? We so we that. saw um, AJA added it to the KaiPro, their sort of portable um, direct-to-disc capture device. Which Just uh, the Mini, though, right? The, uh, all the press releases I saw only mentioned the Mini, which kind of surprised me. I wonder if... Yeah, maybe. If they're know. out of firmware or something on the KeyPro. Because we've got a KeyPro for testing. Or, you know, KeyPro may... Have, because KeyPro is an older device, maybe it actually implemented, you know, specific silicon for ProRes. I don't know. Right. Um I mean that they certainly did that with the IOHD. So and the Keypro maybe is related to that. Um, and then Atomos, uh, the yeah Atomos added support um, to the Ninja device, which is another portable, very low cost uh, field recorder. Um, right. I think Cinedec added it too, didn't they? Um. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I was just looking at that. Yeah. Um, so much. Pretty much all the three big. Well, the two big um, field recorders and then Atomos right. all added it at once. And Atomos is, you know, they've got a lot of buzz, I guess. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, know if I don't they're selling a lot of units. But how many people are enjoying the units they're getting, but yeah. I think you just switched mics. Uh, I don't think so. Did I? Yes. Oh, yeah, my light's not on anymore. What happened? Video. Oh. Should plug it in. All right, I'm back. Okay. That was exciting. Um. So yeah, I, you know, I think it's great to see the support and the switchable support. Uh, it certainly makes you wonder when, you know, Premiere is going to step up to the plate in terms of a serious you know, high-end workflow codec if they're really going to yeah, be Yeah, there was a, there's been a customers. lot of buzz on that on Twitter. A lot of people are asking what what the their solution's going to be. I mean, they've had an on-again, off-again relationship <laughs> with uh, Cineform uh, right. for years and years. But I just, you know, and Cineform certainly, you know, eked out a lot of niches within the industry. You certainly see them in a lot of different places. And now... Um, 
Right. Yeah. Although the acquisition with GoPro makes it a little bit harder for them now. Right. I mean, um, it, that you know, Adobe should have bought Cineform back in the day. Right. But you know, Cineform I think is always always targeted a slightly different subset of users than DNX HD and ProRes. Um because of the things that they've focused on, at least in their marketing materials. But um, yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, Adobe hasn't come up with anything, at least uh, as far as I know, they, they haven't, right? I mean, they've... They, no, they've got nothing. I mean, they've got... They can work with ProRes and Cineform natively. Right. But they don't, you know, they don't own the keys to either of those cars. So I don't know... Right. I mean, they've always been based around <clears throat> sort of, I mean, if you think QuickTime's a, a mess, look at AVI, um, which is just this sort of orphan file format that, that Premiere's always had a lot of AVI, use AVI as a wrapper. And Do they still, they don't use AVI anymore, do they? Don't they? I thought they did. I thought they were all MOV. Mm, even on Windows? Mm, I don't know about Windows. In any case, you know, it, it certainly does make it even more noticeable that they don't have that sort of support if they're serious about drawing some of these customers who are jumping ship or ostensibly jumping ship from Final Cut X. Right, yeah. It'll be interesting. I mean, so there's the... So so let's um, let's cover the rest of IBC and then we'll come back to yeah. these high-end mezzanine codecs yeah. in more detail. So what else came out? So we talked a little bit beforehand on our last podcast about the uh, Red's new product, their new software, and the death of Smoke, which has been, in a way, reincarnated in a product called Hero. Which is sort of takes a lot of that... Um interface and stuff and what broadens it out to support other formats no it's not i mean it's not actually a dit tool anymore that's the strange thing it's more of a um central hub for your workflow okay the idea being you bring in your edl or your clips and it does all the matchbacks and it handles multiple versioning and you can fire off um, things to nuke. So you can say, I need all of these clips um, dropped in a watch folder and create a nuke script for each one of them so that nuke opens them with the right like um, file import node and output node so you get it back in the right format automatically. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's it's really taking place of that producer, production manager, post-supervisors, you know, Excel doc that used to handle tracking all of the files of a production and continually getting someone to, you know, drop new shots into the cut and keep track of what timings we need and whether or not we need, you know, longer handles on this clip and what the editor's been doing, you know, all of that stuff. Sure. It seems to automate a lot of that. And it's, you know, it looks really impressive. Um, I think one of the things that people are most excited about is the first time that the foundry has ever stuck a timeline in anything, mm-hmm. which uh, is... <laughs> 
um, I think some people are a little um, peeved that it came to this before it came to Nuke. Mm, I see. Just because Nuke is so heavily um, node-based, they don't, you know, Shake always had both the timeline and the nodal editor. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure Nuke doesn't have... They have almost nothing in the way of time-based stuff. Like, you can't ever work with more than one clip. Hmm. Well, uh, yeah. I'm but it looks nice. I mean, I watched a demo of it. It seems to be... Uh, Seems to be a cool tool. It doesn't. I don't really understand why they're saying it's a uh, relation to Storm, though. I'm not sure either. I mean, it was. I, 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 I mean, like, it's 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 certainly obvious. It's not like they were planning to kill Storm in the run up to IBC. That sort of no. happened at the last minute when Red announced uh, Cine X. So that's what it looks like, you know. You know, this may. I guess it's a face save thing or something, but. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I don't think there is a. Yeah, this wasn't going to be a replacement. Right. Um, I think what it does do is it, um, you know, it replaces part of the workflow of Storm. Storm was, you know, a DIT tool. It allowed you to do things like do rough cuts in the field, um, string your stuff together, and show stuff to the editor or to the the camera person, or bring stuff to the edit and show them what you've shot. Um, you know, screen stuff for the director. All of that you can do in Hero. You know, you can have this out in the field on your DIT station and you can be dropping in clips from the camera and rough cutting. Right. And the advantage of this is you can fire off EDLs and stuff afterwards. But I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting. I'm not really sure. You know, I don't... I think you have to be in a pretty high-end VFX scenario in order to need this much, you know, management overhead. Right. Well, quite honestly, if you're looking at any of the Foundry stuff, you're probably in a relatively high-end VFX uh, space. Yeah. yeah. So, cool. Um, other announcements from IBC that were interesting. Um, I guess the the one that I was the most excited about from this week has been uh, the Blackmagic Intensity Extreme which I suppose falls into our uh, typical pattern of cool new Thunderbolt things, which will probably continue for a while here as the Thunderbolt train really gets rolling. But this is um, a dirt cheap 299 uh, Thunderbolt box that gives you HDMI in and out as well as analog in and out um, and gives you a, yeah, a cheap way to get Thunderbolt into your MacBook Air or get uh, video into your MacBook Air or Mac Mini or something like that. I think this is Or fantastic. even get video out. I mean, right. you could see someone running, you know, multi-head, you know, video walls from a Mac Mini or a yep. Air. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I'm curious to see how many of these sort of devices will be able to chain together. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the Blackmagic boxes, um, neither the Intensity Extreme nor the Ultra Studio 3D are daisy-chainable. Oh, yeah. Um, so we're still going to be stuck waiting for someone to come up with uh, Thunderbolt hubs, which the, the specification certainly allows for. But I haven't seen anyone even announce one at this point. Um, you've obviously got on things like the Apple uh, Cinema Display or the Apple Thunderbolt Display, um, you've got 
Thunderbolt pass through, uh, loop through. Yeah, that but... just does loop through, right? That doesn't have a. Right. I don't think it's actually it's got a, one, a hub. I was just going to double check. Two, there's two ports on the back. Well, there's one port on the back. Right. I was just double checking that because now I'm starting to wonder if it actually has two. But I don't think it does. Where do they put the Thunderbolt display tech specs? Yeah, I know it has a single Thunderbolt on the back, so you can daisy chain off the monitor, but uh, you, there's there's no way right now on the market to get more than one of these Blackmagic devices attached to a, a MacBook Pro. It's a shame. It is. Um, it's also a shame that, you know, it, it then has to sit at the end of your, your chain unless you've got one of these Thunderbolt. So unless you've got one of these Thunderbolt monitors, you're sort of not able to connect another mini DisplayPort monitor to your computer. Um, oh, that's true because those are always the end of the chain too. Right. I wonder why that is. It seems. I mean, I guess it's chip costs, but. I mean, hopefully, you know, we're definitely starting to see. Um, we saw was it Belkin announced a small little Thunderbolt um, box at IBC as well, or maybe it was at IDF or one of the one of the things this past week um, that just adds FireWire and gigabit Ethernet and USB, basically what you get on the back of a Thunderbolt display um, in a small little box. We're certainly starting to see manufacturers you know, really ramp up Thunderbolt stuff, um, and you would expect yeah. that someone like Belkin will do a, a Thunderbolt hub before too long. Yeah. That would be nice. I wish they had one now because I got a, someone sent out a Belkin 50% off coupon today. <laughs> well, and I I went to their site and I was like, they must have something I need, and they have nothing I need. You probably need it's... a new. No, not really. I don't need anything. It's all plastic junk. Yeah, it was IDF. I was wrong. Where they announced that thing. Um, which again has a, I think has a pass through, but does not have a, uh, or has you know a daisy chain port, but does not have multiple. So, yeah, hopefully someone will uh, will give us a uh, a hub before too long. Yeah, it would be nice if I mean someone seems like that's going to be necessary for a little while here until people can hide the cost of pass through in all their devices. Yeah. Um. Other interesting announcements. I guess um, you mentioned uh, the Windows Resolve release from Blackmagic. Mm-hmm. Anything? So, I mean, I just thought it was curious that there um, seems like everyone is kind of. Uh, I don't know. Mac is Mac, and the the Final Cut Studio ecosystem is just you know the big overarching trend here is besides the hardware stuff with Thunderbolt is Apple is not you know pushing. The direction of the industry right now it seems like everyone's sort of hedging their bets right right That's and it seems you know that. it seems like that you know the the two big things that come out of uh this you know the resolve announcements are windows support linux support and uh um round tripping through avid mm-hmm. so i mean they're obviously expecting you know a large portion of their customer base, people who used to cut and final cut and finish and resolve to be switching to Avid and they want to be able to support them on both Mac and PC. Sure. So it's I don't know, it's curious. Yeah, it definitely is. Um and you know we're still waiting for some news out of Apple on Final Cut X and I haven't heard anything out of the uh 
the private events that they were holding in Amsterdam either, um, whether they actually said anything at those. But uh, yeah, you know, I certainly, you know, can't fault any of these companies for trying to hedge their bets. It's unfortunate because, you know, one of the nice things about, and, and we certainly benefited from this at Divergent Media, one of the nice things about there being a really big installed customer base in Final Cut Studio is that as a small developer, you can limit yourself to targeting that market and still have a, a big enough market that you're targeting to be sustainable um you know for indie developers whether you're doing plugins or you know you know accessory applications or things like that it's you know pretty big ramp up to go from supporting one you know one suite or one version of one suite on one platform to supporting you know potentially three suites on three platforms um that's you know a pretty big jump up to still target you know effectively the same market yes although i mean i don't know it's i mean final cut was never the whole market no but it was a majority of the market well it looked like that to us because we only ever supported final cut well no i mean the numbers say it was the majority of the market too yeah but i mean it depends on i mean like no it was not the majority of like oscar winning films but right i mean it depends on who you were what sort of customers you were trying to to get right you know like resolve should have probably supported avid the whole time i mean right but but at the same time you know i mean there's no way that the majority of films being color corrected on da vinci before black magic bought it were not cut on avid right but the idea that they didn't round trip yeah, but DaVinci always existed. You know, it's a finishing platform, and so they didn't have to care as much about some of that. Right. Um, you know, I don't know. I really like the uh, Blackmagic heavy-duty mini converters, although it's a little <laughs> strange that they're branded heavy-duty, but they're they're Australians. You get it. Um, but they look nice, and, and it's nice because... Uh, you can run them over with your truck. Well, what I like about them is that the ports are recessed so that, I don't know, I've certainly run into issues with those other, you know, the various mini converters, whether they're from Blackmagic or Miranda or any of these people that you sort of have very fragile, you know, DC power connectors floating off the side and, and they can take a hit and, and you, you know, rip the port off the board. So the, you know, being recessed is nice and obviously the form factor is nice, I guess. That's see, had you been paying the premium for AJA all this time, you wouldn't have had that problem. I suppose I wouldn't have. They had the little screw in they have screw in power adapters on theirs. Okay. Well, They're really slick. That screw in power adapter, that's worth the extra the fifty percent markup yeah, or whatever it is. Exactly. <laughs> but we love them. Yes. AJA. And And we love Black Magic too. We love everyone. We even love Bluefish 444. <laughs> they, they still around? I think they are. I think they are too. I think they had an announcement this week about something. Uh, speaking of cards, AMD. Yeah. What the hell is that about? Okay, so um, they came out with an announcement about something they're calling, I think they're calling it Fire Pro SDI Link. The idea behind this is you have an AMD graphics card in your machine. Your GPU is, you know, increasingly the only place you do any graphics processing. Just to be clear for people who aren't aware, uh, AMD equals ATI. So if you've got right. an ATI board, you have an AMD board. Right. So in all Macs at this point, uh, free no. shipping. No. 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 I, I thought they pulled all NVIDIA cards. 
I mean, you can add them in, but they don't ship with them ever. Isn't my, well, my MacBook Pro is NVIDIA or the new MacBook Pro is ATI. I thought they switched everything because of the uh, their argument between Intel and NVIDIA. No, that was just on the low-end stuff, wasn't it? Uh, no, no, you can't get a right. MacBook Pro with ATI either. Yeah, I mean, you, can't get right. a, you can't get a Mac Pro with an ATI card without build-to-order. Huh. Well, there we go. Yes. It was also a, a helpful screw you to uh, anyone relying on CUDA, like yeah. Adobe. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, yeah, so ATI, the graphics cards in all Macs, all shipping Macs, um, are increasingly where we're doing all of our graphics processing, either through OpenGL, um, Apple-level frameworks like Core Image or Core Video, um, you know, all of the color sync processing that's done in Final Cut X and other apps, um, and even OpenCL, you know, for sort of generic processing. That all of that happens on the GPU. And so say you're writing a um, say you're you, you know you're a company that produces OEM you know turnkey solutions for weather you know the weather guy who stands in front of the green screen and okay. so all you're trying to do is composite an incoming you take an incoming HDSDI signal you green screen it you composite graphics on top and you send it back out HDSDI the the path the data takes right now is you have your capture card sitting on your uh, PCI bus, it captures a frame, you do what's called a DMA, a direct memory access, which convert, which pulls that data across the PCI bus into RAM. You then upload it to your graphics card because you want to do, you know, you want to do the fast thing and do all of your um, compositing on the GPU. Right. You do your compositing on the GPU, you DMA it back down to the CPU again, and then you DMA it back up to the graphics or the in the Black Magic card or the Aja card, and you say send this out, you know, your second port. And so, you know, in a case like that, it's not inconceivable that eighty percent of your overhead is just transferring video frames back and forth across the PCI bus. And the idea behind Fire Pro is that you never go to the CPU. So there's still two transfers, but they happen direct from card to card. Right, so you never go to the RAM. Right. So you, I mean, you still have two, two conversion or two DMA passes, but they are, I don't know if they call them DMA if they're card to card. Um, but you know, essentially where you used to transfer the data four times, off the card, up to the GPU, off the GPU, back to the capture card. Now you just do two transfers from the graph from the capture card to the GPU, from the GPU back to the capture card. And you never hit the computer itself. And they're implementing this in their AMD is going to provide an SDK that third party vendors can um, target basically. Right, that's what it sounds like. So it looks like AGA has said they're going to do it. Black Magic, um, eh, I'm not sure. The 
the link we have here isn't listing partners, but um, they speculate that Blackmagic and AJA will do it. But somewhere else I saw actually had, I know it listed AJA as a someone who was going to sign on to this. Right. Um, I mean, what I, so the, okay. Yeah, so the really neat thing is you can basically, it sounds like what you're going to be able to do is in existing technologies like OpenGL and OpenCL, You'll be able to just have a texture that you say, or you know, it's probably going to be something like an FBO, a frame buffer object, where it just, anytime you look at it, it has the newest frame of video, right, coming in your HDSDI, which is really cool. <laughs> so it looks like their partners are AJA, Blackmagic, Bluefish, DeltaCast, DVS, and Matrox. So pretty much all the big names, plus a nice. few less big names. Um. So that's that's really exciting, and I think the other thing that's really cool about this is that it's a card level thing, um, rather than since AMD, you know, obviously AMD makes chips and they make motherboards and other things. Um, you, I sort of expected that this would be, you know, something specific to, you know, the motherboard or something. I mean, it wouldn't necessarily have to be, but um, I'm sort of surprised that you just need one of their cards to be able to take advantage of this. Yeah. Um, and it's certainly going to be an attractive option, especially if they start to roll it out across um, their line. I mean, right now they've actually released or announced a separate board that will um, support this. So they've got their their V7900, and then they've got the V7900 SDI, which is a separate product. Um, oh, okay. And so hopefully, right. you know, hopefully this just becomes part something that's part of their driver set, essentially, in their. I mean, I don't see it being incredibly necessary for. I don't see it helping um like home users much well right but i mean, I mean it's, there's it's, the one pass that you there's the one pass you can lose which is most people do their final frame composite on the gpu and then want to preview that out of capture device right and so you know that one that process can be sped up but most people aren't round tripping live to live well, but in, in theory, this would even allow you to, you know, you know, it, it should save you at least one trip, even in cases where you're, um, you know, doing real-time effects on a stored file or something. Right, only for playout. So you, right, you save right, one right. trip on the playout. Or if and you want to do something great. during capture. I mean, I mean, where I think this is going to be, I mean, what this is really targeting is OEMs. Right. Which is why I think they're not going to push this to their complete card set very quickly because they're probably going to have a separate set of SKUs for OEMs that sure. support this. Because what this allows you to do is if you're making that, you know, hypothetical weather box, weatherman box, you now don't have to buy an incredibly beefy CPU. You know, you need a CPU that's able to upload graphics to a GPU. And those don't even need to really happen in real time because you're just uploading, you know, the the little animated gif of the you know the sad cloud um, that's crying or whatever they do now. I haven't seen a newscast in years. Um, are they all in three D now? Aren't they? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, oh, they, they actually shoot things. The three D sad cloud that cries. Um, yeah, so you upload that to the graphics card, and that doesn't have to happen every frame. You do that once, and then you know basically the PCI bus runs everything, and you're. All you're doing is drawing, you know, your hideously bad Windows UI on top of it. Right. For I mean, some guy to hit the button. I mean, um, you know, 
I guess I, I understand um, why they wouldn't roll this out across their line, but I'm not clear whether there's actually anything that changes in the silicon of the card. Uh, do you have a sense of that? I mean, I guess there may be something dealing with latency or I don't know. Otherwise, it just seems like it's mostly a you know an SDK that unlocks the path for moving this data. Yeah, I don't I don't know enough about PCI controllers. Are all PCI controllers able to do direct card to card? I don't know. Or do you need a host controller for that? I, I think you might need a slightly beefier. You know, I think there's the notion of you know a simple slave versus a hostable slave sort of deal in PCI, but I'm not. I'm yeah, I'm not sure. I'd be curious to find out when it comes to hardware like that. Yeah, but anyways, it's a cool product, and hopefully, um, we'll see it in you know future Mac Pros. Uh, but if not, I'm sure we're going to see it in a lot of turnkey boxes. Um, you know, the Ultimats and other things of the world. Right. And I mean, the other, the, you know, it's also a signaling sort of thing as well. I mean, what's nice about this is AMD seems to be actually trying again in the high-end video processing sphere. You know, they really lost ground to NVIDIA. Um, especially, I mean, part of that has to do with, you know, that we're on the Mac and slightly myopic. I mean, I don't know how poorly they were doing on Windows, but, you know, what is OpenCL now was basically foisted upon them, kicking and screaming from everything. You know, at least that's how it looked from the outside, you know, NVIDIA proactively designed GPGPU. Apple adopted, you know, a similar model, which NVIDIA went out of their way to support. And then, you know, it wasn't until very recently that OpenCL, you know, was anywhere near as robust on the ATI cards as it was on. I mean, even at the time that Apple stopped shipping NVIDIA and went to ATI, it didn't really. <laughs> right. No, no. We said it didn't work. It. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, it, it, you know, this is a good signal that they're actually going to try. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Which I, I, mean, like. I guess I don't know. Um, the, I don't think these boards are actively shipping yet. So it would probably be too much to hope for them to uh, show up in the, the Mac Pros that are hopefully coming in the next uh, month and a half or so. But uh, right. And I think we need, we, you know, it's going to be a while before the card vendors are supporting it as well, the capture card vendors. So it's not, you know, a pressing thing. I suspect it'll be six months before we start seeing the fruits of this. Yeah. But it's a cool idea. I mean... You know, you can imagine a future where we do a lot more stuff peer-to-peer across PCI or across Thunderbolt. Yeah, well, and that, you know... And this, Thunderbolt, this... you know, if you can have all of your capture cards rendering to the GPUs that are built in your monitors now that aren't sitting in your computer anymore... Well, or there's no reason that you couldn't put one of these boxes into a Magma or Sonnet box, uh, one of these cards in one of those boxes, and you've got your uh, your Ultra Studio 3D, and you can you know set up a little a little compositing chain sitting on your Mac Mini. Right. Um, that's a pretty attractive solution. It's neat tech. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, hopefully. Um, I guess I don't. Do you know what the what the landscape is like in terms of you know supporting other GPUs on OS ten? 
I guess it's still a matter of Apple needing support. Yeah, Apple does. It's a strange thing because Apple actually is. I don't know how. There are definitely people within Apple's campus that are involved in writing all of the third-party hardware manufacturers, OpenGL drivers. Right. And I'm, I mean, I know some. Of, I know a lot of them have in like Nvidia or ATI email addresses. So I'm not sure. It's definitely a close relationship. Right. And I, you know, I don't think we could go out and ship a GPU next week. Right. And I think they still use custom firmwares as well, don't they? I mean, you can't just buy an off-the-shelf, even if it's the same GeForce, whatever. I don't know what the. I don't know if that's true anymore. I think they actually share the same firmware now. Okay. Historically, but, you know, you had to like hack a firmware onto a card or something or right. buy the, the double price Mac specific version. Right. You you couldn't just go to Best Buy and buy a card. Right. But I'm pretty sure now the firmware is the same. It's just the driver stack on Mac tends to be a little behind on exposing features of the cards. Right. Well, it'll be interesting to watch this technology um, and, and see who adopts it, but certainly a lot of vendors could benefit from it. Yeah. Um, other things, do you know anything about this Canon event? I know you bookmarked it. Um, yeah, so Canon, we should, yeah, so just to explain, Canon went and announced they're trying to look like Apple, and they announced a little surprise event November 3rd in Hollywood, which I think sends some clues. And they're making a historic global announcement. Yeah, and so they sent out like a save the day card. They're gonna marry red or something. Um, and I mean, that's about all we know at this point. I mean, it's the rumors I've heard around the internet all revolve around a four or three camera, four thirds camera. Hmm. Um, something to compete with, you know depending upon who you talk to, compete with Red or compete with the AF100 or compete with the, um, what's the the F3? What uh, are they called? The low-end F300, yeah, FS3? The, the F3, the Sony? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't Something it? sort of in that range. Three, F3. Okay. Well, I mean, um, the... Yeah, unfortunately, it's one of those things where Canon's in so many different spaces. Um, right. I mean, a lot know. of people have other things they want it to be, and that's why they're sure it's going to be that. Right. But Some awesome lens or projector or or the printer. 5D Mark III or the five the 8D. But I don't, you know, I don't think any of those make sense for an event in Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, it's also the the card itself has a bunch of different colored light blooms. Um, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know either. I guess we'll have to see on November 3rd. It's uh, interesting that they're sending it out this early as well. I guess it's not quite like Apple where they can send it out two days in advance and know that everyone will be there. Right. People actually want to get the discount airfare to come to one of their events. Yeah, I'll be, I don't know. It'll be, it'll be interesting. I mean, people have said they've seen the camera and that they're impressed but I take that all with a grain of salt. Hmm. Okay. Well, we will uh, keep an eye out. Um, the only other thing before we get to uh, nerdy codec stuff that you had listed here was the Marshall Audio Stereoscopic Monitor. Oh, yeah. So um, another thing on IBC. 
I think was I added just, an extra syllabus, syllable. was auto stereoscopic 3D yeah. production monitor. So it's a small, I think I want to say 11 inch. Uh, seven. Inch. Seven. Okay. Um, small, glasses free 3D monitor to put on your camera. I don't know. I thought it was interesting. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm still I'm still confused by 3D. It yeah. seems like it's both going away and not at the same time. Well, but I mean that's the way these things go because people have product pipelines that are a couple years deep, and it rarely makes sense unless you're um, someone like Apple. It rarely makes sense to kill a product even if the market doesn't necessarily exist for it. Um, I can't believe that's true. I mean, if you've well, maybe I should say people rarely have the guts to kill a product, even if the market has gone away. Um, right. People usually, you know, I've announced it, I'm going to ship it. And even if I don't sell any, I still am going to ship it. And, you know, whatever else you have, you have commitments to product, to, to parts vendors, you have commitments to manufacturing partners, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I guess if you're a CEO, it's better to blame the losses on the customer than blame the losses on yourself. Right. <laughs> I don't know. It I mean, just I, just, I can't think I mean, of too many cases where I've heard of products being killed late in development um, aside from from Apple products. Right. I mean, you know, it. I can, you know, I can, I don't know, I'm conflicted. I can still see, you know, ever since I got this 3D monitor, I don't use it at all, but um, I can see it being hassle-free enough and um you know it's a it's a small plus with very little um negatives mm-hmm. like it seems like you can sort of glom 3D onto everything and just have it around when you want it um and so i don't know i mean i could still imagine a future where everything is both 2D and 3D, and you kind of decide at your at your sofa which way you want to watch it. Sure. Yeah, uh, you know, the next sort of, well, the holiday season will be really interesting to see if there is a big marketing push behind 3D. I, I guess I'm not expecting one too much, but... Uh, it still seems to be making its way into consumer-level cameras. Right. And so, I mean, that's what's really going to push it. Because, I mean, at this point, you know, the the workflows are all, you know, the infrastructure is sort of built out. We just need demand from customers. Right. And I don't think we get that. I don't know. Like, I don't think people are going to start, like, delivering 3D content and stuff for the, for the home until we get a far larger adoption of TVs. Right. And I don't know. I, mean, I, don't I, know I just think the, big, the bigger problem is whether consumers really want this. Not and, you know, not just do they do they not care whether they get it one way or the other. But I, it feels like a lot of consumers actively don't want it, and so it seems like you're fighting against the the stream when you're trying to push these products. It's not just a matter of um, you know getting the price down to the point that it's included by default with the products. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems to be somewhat popular in games. Right? Is it? Am I making that up? Am I, I imagining that? I don't know of any. Uh, mm-hmm. What I've always heard is that you know, 
3D for for video games is just sort of makes you sick. Don't video games just make you sick? Isn't that uh, maybe if you're old, maybe for over thirty? That sounds like yeah. So that might confirm that hypothesis. I don't know. All right. So um, one of the more exciting bits of news this week was that FFmpeg, those uh, crazy French video bastards, uh, have got a ProRes decoder. Right. So they, someone, I think yesterday, yeah, committed a patch to their software, which allows, um, at this point, it's, Video LAN, which is no, I guess it's in FFMB. Yeah, it's all they um, all share the same library. It's libav. Right, and so it adds support for decoding ProRes files, and this is a big deal because was that a was that a threat? that's a question that I tried raising. My... Oh well, I mean this this is a big deal because up until now the only ways to get ProRes decoding were to be running on Mac or Windows with a QuickTime plugin or to be friends with Apple enough that they give you a license. Um, and what this has meant, you know, practically is that there are a whole lot of workflows built around technologies like FFmpeg because FFmpeg um, is this sort of magical anything to anything transcoding platform that sort of supports really old formats and has really, really good support for, um, you know, modern codecs like um, H.264. And And is free. And is is free and open source. Um, And they've had, you know, over the past few years, um, the product has pushed into the pro production pipeline. Um, A while ago, someone funded... Um, development of support for things like DVC Pro HD, and they've had XD Cam support, and all these formats. So ProRes has always been this this big gap. Um, and so, if you're, for example, a um, video sharing website that builds your platform around FFmpeg, and there are a lot of these, you know, not just the the big guys, um, but also sorry about that. Um, also a lot of sort of turnkey services for corporations to sort of build their own internal YouTube and things like that. Um, they've never had support for ProRes and the way that, you know, people have gotten around this is you sort of set up a separate box running windows that you shell jobs out to and have a separate pipeline for dealing with ProRes files. And it's really messy. So this is really exciting for, for those folks. Um, and I think that's where you're going to see people, you know, jump in to get this rolled in their products as soon as possible. Right. Hopefully. I mean, yeah. Oh, go ahead. And so the other thing is, you know, so someone has, ProRes is not, there's no spec for it. There's no um, documentation. I mean, there's no way to write a codec for this sort of thing. So someone has reverse engineered the codec. Right. It's worth saying whether, how they did that isn't really apparent yet. They either, they either stole the source code or they, you know, more likely they, you know, took advantage of the fact that Apple, you know, that this code is not very novel. Um, the ProRes codec is internally very similar to the DNX HD codec and the VC3 codec. I mean, they all have, you know, roughly the same technology under the hood. Um, and so, you know, most likely someone who understood how those other two codecs worked sort of, you know, set about reverse engineering this. 
Right. I, and it would be interesting to get some of the backstory. I took a look around the um, FFmpeg and libav codec mailing list and couldn't really find much discussion of this, which is a bit surprising. Um, as I mentioned, you know, historically, a lot of these pro formats have gotten added based on a company that needed it, funding a developer to, to build it. Um, and it may be that whoever is behind that just has chosen to stay quiet. Um, I'm not really sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm not sure how, I mean, I'm assuming that, you know, there are going to be issues with trade secrets, although once something's out in the open, I think it's hard to defend trade secret. You know, you can go after the original person. I don't think you can go after people who use this now. Right, no, I think it's, it's, you know, I think at this point And I am not an intellectual property lawyer. Oh, Um, I am. Oh really? Yeah. I, did I not mention that on my application? Yeah. Is that how you charge four seventy five an hour? <laughs> uh, That's how much my IP lawyer charges. Actually, that was a long time ago. Yeah, I think he's double that now. A lot more than that now. Oh, so spendy. God, we should um, get into that business. Screw software. <laughs> we should start a law firm, and the first thing we say anytime we talk to someone is, "I am not a lawyer, but." <laughs> But I really I like recommend. getting paid. Um, yeah. So there's that. No. So, so I th- it's very yeah. So it's very similar to the other two codecs, um, which will be interesting. I mean, I'm actually one of the things I want to do this weekend in my uh, in my free time. Your fun <laughs> time. Uh, your fun weekend time. Yeah. My, my wind down time is to. Compare this codec to FFmpeg's um, DNX HD codec because I suspect they will have a lot of chunks of code that look very similar, and that might be a bit of a clue on who wrote it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, you know, it seems like someone sort of came out of the woodwork and committed this without having ever done anything else in the project, but. Part of me wonders if that's just a defense mechanism. Right. I mean, FFmpeg, the the product coordinators, obviously, you know, wouldn't have accepted this patch without having a better sense of what was going on. So, um, because it has, I think, it's actually been accepted into the main. It's not just a proposed patch. It's actually been accepted, I believe, really um, to the main FFmpeg tree. So, are you sure? But um, pretty sure. I mean, it's not in a release because they haven't done a release since this was uh, accepted, but it looks to me like it's been accepted onto the master branch. Interesting. So, um, So, yeah, so they they know something about it then. Um, I don't know. It'll be be interesting. I mean, so now that they've done this, it's only a matter of time before they have an encoder. Right. Because, you know... Writing a decoder is the first step to writing an encoder, and that'll be that'll be pretty exciting for a lot of people as well, and and sort of lift the um, Apple. I, I mean, to Apple's credit, they've gotten a lot more friendly about letting people use ProRes, as we saw at NAB this year. But it's still a pretty high burden to even make that contact and walk through that whole process if you want to churn out a small product or you want to do a small application. That yeah, I don't think you can do that. Like, I don't think I don't think it's the sort of thing where you can easily go to them and say right 
you know, I'm one guy. I want to write this app that does this. Unfortunately, I needed to run on Linux. They would be like, no. Right, right. You wouldn't even find the right person's phone number, I don't think. Right. Um, because you look at who has done this in the past. It's AJA. Um, well, it ended up there were a Magic lot more smaller done? companies. I don't think Blackmagic has, but they haven't done anything. They do all uncompressed for right. cost reasons. But, you know, Atomos has. Um, right, but Atomos is, you know, a guy who, what he did. He was, I don't know, he was fairly high up in Blackmagic. I'm not sure what he did. <laughs> I thought he did devote, you know, he did. I'm sure he had contacts at Apple through that. Sure, sure. But no, there were a number of products at, at NAB that were that I was surprised at the scale at which they were they were able to support Pro is. In any case, um, it's I think it, you know it's a it's a great thing for anyone using these formats. Now, the last thing I would love to see um, is an ICOD or an Apple Intermediate decoder. You think that'll yeah, happen? Yeah, I don't see that happening. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of Apple there's Intermediate not a lot of workflows built around. Well, any iMovie workflows though, if you think about the the files right, that but those are aren't workflows. They're not, they're not workflows, but if you think about the FFmpeg user base, which is you know people like Vimeo, right? I mean, wouldn't they love to be able to support Apple Intermediate files? Wouldn't you know Kaltura sure. love to be able to support Apple Intermediate files? Sure. Um, so what is this? This is actually a question I really don't know the answer to. Um, do any of ClipRap's competitors support ProRes right now? Well, the way they do it is that they'll they like decode to some sort of intermediary thing and then sort of shell out to a QuickTime shim. Right. So let's just let's just as a as a explanation of why I asked that question. I think we can trash talk more on here than we do publicly as a company. Um, <laughs> All of ClipRap's competitors don't do transcoding like they say they do. They don't even do reading M2T files like they say they do or MTS files. They draw buttons on a screen, and then when you want to actually do the thing that you bought the program to do, they run a copy of FFmpeg in the background. Now, to be fair, sometimes uh, they compiled FFmpeg into their code, and they they do that (laughs) internally. But usually, right, but anyways, those are the ones that actually don't credit FFmpeg. Uh-huh. Right. So, but they're all based off FFmpeg's code base for the demuxing and the transcoding. Right. So you're saying some of them basically write out, they do a rewrap in the background or something. And then... Right. I mean, there are ways to like, um, you know, from FFmpeg or some of the tools based around the FFmpeg ecosystem to just sort of pipe data out of FFmpeg oh, yeah. into QuickTime. And do your uncut that way, but it's one of the reasons that they're they're all much much slower than than ClipRap as well. Interesting. So yeah, I wonder what that'll do to us. Well, once there's an encoder, right? We'll be on to bigger and better things by then. True. Right. Also, we should probably. I don't know. Are we gonna? Are we gonna roll in our own ProRes pipeline? If someone does an encoder, um, you know, unless Apple makes the uh, component freely available, I guess there would be some attraction to that. It, you know, the downside, of course, with having, you know, like one of the attractive things about the, the Apple ProRes ecosystem is that everyone's running the same code. 
And so right. in theory, there's consistency. Um, now we're introducing a reverse engineered decoder, which will spawn a reverse engineered encoder, uh, which could introduce either edge cases or, you know. Oh yeah, they're both gonna, yeah, it's gonna become a far more fragile ecosystem. Right, and I hadn't thought of that. I mean, one that's going to be one of the attractive things about ProRes is that not only is it sort of visually lossless coming out of uncompressed, it's visually lossless across something like you know two hundred decode encode cycles. So there's not generation loss, Um, and that was one of the things that they really pushed when they announced the product. Once you start introducing multiple encode decoders, um, if they're using slightly different quantization tables or other things, generation loss becomes much more of an issue. Um, that is true. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, this is still a net benefit, but, um, you know, the, the best thing that could happen is that it would push Apple to open the spec and put out a reference encoder and a reference decoder and, you know, be serious members of the software community. But Do you, do you ever imagine that happening? I think that they... I would it, love to see that happen. I think they gave it a lot of thought about a year ago or whenever it was that there were a number of rumors that they were considering it. And I think that, you know, internally they made the decision that it wasn't the right thing to do and they wanted to keep the control. But now they're going to have lost the control. And so you may as well jump in and at least maintain, you know, steering of the format. Right. I mean, I could see how doing it a year ago was a bad decision because one, they didn't have anything to show on the studio front. And two, you know, it would just would have been a weird, you know, it would have it would have played badly following their whole, you know, flop at NAB two years ago where they said, you know, look at all these great new things we're doing by not stopping other developers from writing plugins. Right. You know, if they, if their big announcement had been, look, anyone can do stuff with ProRes now, you know, would have basically said like, you know, our role in the market now is to not get in other people's way. Well, buying Final Cut Studio. Of course, historically, um, the time at which Apple opens products is when they're killing them. You know, <laughs> th- things get things get cheap and things get released. You know, web objects. Um, I don't know. Shake. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. Um, it's it's definitely going to be a. Uh, it's going to change the market a little bit here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, immediately, I think you'll see it, you know, see this rolled into some of these video platforms. And from that perspective, it's really exciting. But uh, we'll just have to see where it goes from here. So, anything else? Um, Before we get to uh, whatever we call the things that we do at the end, our end credits. No. What do we want to call them? We need a name for these. I don't know. Um, no, I think we can. Let's wrap this up. Let's get to... All right, what do you want to... Uh... So uh, my thing this week is sort of a synthesis of a, of a few things I've seen around in the last couple of weeks. Um, and so the first was the BBC documentary on color I mentioned a number of weeks back. It uh, inside that documentary, they funded some, or you know, they sort of worked with a scientist to do some research into color perception. And uh, one of the the cruxes of his study was color perception, 
Um, you know, and the process was they had iMac set up in rooms and they put up, you know, they had a program running on it where it had a color and then a, um, basically it had two colors um, that were either the same or slightly different. And then what they did was had people basically like hit the space bar when they, when they saw the colors diverge from being the same color or, you know, choose whether or not they were the same or different. I don't remember exactly how the study was set up. But the idea was they, you know, they they checked to see whether people saw the same two colors or different colors, and um, and then they cross tabulated it with things like age and uh, sex and sort of, you know, the mindset they put the person in before putting them into the study, whether or not they were, you know, confused or distracted or um, you know, sort of propped up emotionally. Um, and so one of the interesting things that came out of this was women on the whole, you know, corrected for everything else across all the age groups were, you know, significantly better at picking out two different colors than men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I just kind of lodged that in the back of my head, thought that was weird. Um, and then this week I found a link to a, um, another similar study which was sort of um gender based um study about uh color preferences between the two genders and how they name colors and what their favorite and least favorite colors are and whether or not they're better at seeing um shades or tints and uh something which seemed somewhat related um was the fact that the study found that women name colors more. They have, they use, you know, like whereas men say, oh, all six of these are pink. Right. You know, women will say, this is carnation, this is strawberry and bubblegum and magenta and salmon and, you know, all these different colors. And so, you know, there's that, you know, apparently true story about the, you know, the tribe that doesn't have a difference between green and blue, and so they can't see the difference between them. Right. Um, which was also brought up in the BBC documentary, and apparently it's true. Um, but I thought how, you know, this may somehow, how the language behind it may somehow be related. You know, the idea that because they have names for more colors, they see more colors. Sure. Um, and so somehow, you know, the act of seeing all those clothes and makeup ads over the years have somehow made women more perceptive at color differencing. And conversely, it explains why I just wear blue jeans and a t-shirt every day. Right. But then, so, and so the last thing that, you know, and what both of these studies have made me think is why are there none, zero women colorists? Well, I, and I think that's because. I mean, we know why that is, but it seems like. There should be. It seems surprising that, I mean, one, I, I don't know, I'd be curious to see if, one, how colorists compare, yeah. if, you, if you give them the same study, if they're, I mean, I would assume they are at the high end of perceptual abilities for men, but I just thought it was curious that you... Yeah, but shouldn't all the good colorists just be trusting uh, scope box anyways? Yes. Yes, they should. That's right. 
$99, divergentmedia.com. Uh, my uh, talk this week was about, um, just briefly note that Obama signed the America Invents Act, uh, which is the Patent Reform Act that's worked its way through the House and the Senate recently. Um, we haven't really gotten into talking too much about patents on the show, but uh, if you're not familiar with this act, it is not uh, much in the way of interest vis-a-vis um, -vis solutions to America's patent woes. Um, essentially, it makes life slightly easier for the people who are filing patents, um, the Apples and IBMs and Googles of the world who actually file a lot of patents. It makes life a little bit easier for them in terms of how they have to handle litigation and things after that, but it does not really do anything to address the issue of patent trolling um, or some of the other more unpleasant patent practices that are out there. Right. It sounds like this makes this fixes an issue between the u.s and foreign countries right not between powerful u.s companies and inventors right or which is the solution you know that i think both you and i were hoping right and the unfortunate thing is that the way that you know the legislature works in this country is that now we've done patent reform and the topic just is not going to come up for the next few years. I mean, unfortunately, this was the chance and the way these, these topics work is that you, you almost never come about, around to them again quickly. What Even if, you know, the fix didn't solve the problem, obviously there are a lot of issues to be dealt with in this country. And even though we think this is an important one, um, you know, 16% unemployment and two wars are equally important. So uh, they, right. they'll probably be next on the agenda. Um, so yeah, it's definitely, I mean, you know, um, on the one hand, it's nice to see patent reform getting any attention at all at the higher levels of our government, but on the negative side, it feels like a real missed opportunity. Right. I mean, it seems like one of those cases where, you know, well-intentioned people went in and said, we've got a problem here and less well-intentioned people went to the same Congress people and said, you know, luck, we've got a solution. Right. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I guess, you know, the one thing I will say is that the issue that is really hurting the big companies as well right now in these patent lawsuits and patent troll issues, you know, whether it's Apple um, suing HTC or HTC suing Apple or whether it's, you know, um, intellectual ventures coming out there and suing some of these guys, this doesn't address any of that. And I think that you can feel a sense in the Valley that these companies are all you know, freaked out about patents. And you saw today again, you know, Google just bought another 1300 patents from IBM. And, you know, there's all this, this, this real ramp up around patents going on right now. And so, you know, the more that the people who can afford to pay the lobbyists are hurting, the, the more likely it is it'll be dealt with. And I think that the solution that helps those companies with some of these issues also helps indie developers. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, it's, as much as it hurts them, it doesn't, you know, I, I'm not convinced that this doesn't actually help a company like Google in the end. This, this act I mean, or patent no, issues? No, patent, the mm -hmm. patent system as it stands. I mean, it, you know, they certainly were caught with their pants around their ankles on patents. You know, they were a little too optimistic for years, but it seems like if you are a company in the tech sphere with a pile of cash who doesn't want to spend it on, you know, things that help the economy than buying worthless patents in order to have a, you know, free reign monopoly over other people. 
seemed like a good way to go. Well, but I mean, why not buy a monopoly in something? Well, but I think the point is that um, intellect, what Intellectual Ventures is doing, where they've bought up patents and then spun off shell companies just to sue based on a single patent. And this is the issue around whatever. I forget what the shell company about um, that's suing about the App Store apps is. But uh, Lodesis? Yeah, Lodesis. Um, you know, the problem is that obviously they haven't sued Apple yet. Um, but, well, they can't sue Apple. Well, I mean, they, they can't really sue uh any of the developers either but that's for the courts to decide but yes i guess they they have a license agreement with apple but in any case i mean the, the problem with a, a patent troll company that's been set up just to sue companies based on a single patent is that they aren't worried about getting sued for infringing on you know one of the ten thousand patents that apple holds because they don't do anything and so they can't be violating patents um and i think that's the real risk so obviously obvi- you know I, I see the cases of you know, Apple suing HTC is different from, you know, Lodsys suing Apple, even if that were to happen. Um, there's there's a different sort of, they're, they're playing on different levels in terms of the way they're approaching the conversation. And so I think that, you know, when trolls start to become more of an issue for these big companies, then we'll see more attention focused on them. Yeah. I don't know. It'll be interesting. I'm, I mean, if the trolls were smart, they would just steer clear of the big guys. And Well, I mean, obviously, Lodzis, in some ways, was thinking about that by getting a license from Apple and then suing Indies. But, uh, I, and, and, you know, whether they were banking on Apple not getting involved or not, and obviously Google's now gotten involved as well. Well, um, both of their licenses say they can't get involved, so it's been... Right. It's but, been interesting. Well, yeah. In, in any case... Uh, Pattern reform, yay, we got it. Yeah, exactly. Done. Let's move on. Let's talk about copyright. All right. uh, So we'll see you next week. Yep. Take care.